I want to invite you to turn your Bibles to uh, the prophet Isaiah, who was in the Old Testament. You might want to just even turn to the middle of your Bible. You'll be pretty close. And I want to invite you to turn to Isaiah chapter 40. These are ancient words, very old words, but hopefully they will be relevant for us this evening. So hear the word of the Lord from Isaiah chapter 40 for us this evening. It says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Tell her, tell her that her sad days are gone and her sins are pardoned. Yes, the Lord has punished her twice over for all her sins. Listen, it's the voice of someone shouting. Clear the way through the wilderness for the Lord. Make a straight highway through the wasteland for our God. Fill in the valleys and level the mountains and hills. Straighten the curves and smooth out the rough places. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all the people will see it together. The glory of the Lord will be revealed and all will see it together. And the Lord has spoken. A voice said, shout. I asked, what should I shout? Shout that the people are like grass. Their beauty fades as quickly as the flowers in a field. The grass withers and the flowers fade beneath, beneath the beneath of the Lord. And so it is with people. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. O Zion, messengers of good news, shout from the mountaintops. Shout it louder, O Jerusalem. Shout and do not be afraid. Tell the towns of Judah your God is coming. Yes, the sovereign Lord is coming in power. He will rule with a powerful arm. See, he brings his reward with him as he comes. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will carry the lambs in his arms, holding them close to his heart. He will gently lead the mother sheep with their young. This is the word of God for the people of God, and let us say together, thanks be to God. You may be seated. So, uh, I've discovered something, and that is America likes God. Uh, Most polls show that Americans believe, that most Americans believe in some sort of uh, some sort of ultimate power, and a massive percentage of Americans uh, attend worship in some way or another. But while there is this connection in America to the divine, we Americans have this uncanny ability to shape God and craft God into our own image. In the midst of this chaotic world, and it is chaotic, if you have not watched the news this week, you might miss out, but it is chaotic, you need to know that American religion preaches that God is a salve to the soul. God is the help to our worry, the solvent to our problems. God is the ministry to our angst. We've created this entire religious narrative, and we tell our story and have built a theological construct around this. Scholars call it moralistic therapeutic deism. In other words, we tell a story and it goes like this. God wants you to be good, and as a result of your goodness, God will make you happy. Karl Marx said that religion was the opioid of the masses. And I think as Americans, we'd take in God intravenously if we thought it'd help our particular situation. It's it's difficult to imagine that God, as the scriptures point out, could be disappointed or angry, or jealous, or envious, or could carry out judgment. Because after all, God manages our affairs. God administers our politics. 
God is our battle shield in times of war. A bumper sticker that I saw a few years ago said it best, God, guts, and guns made America. We find ourselves in a God story, and we build this narrative around our image of God. This is our story. And truth be told, it's a really, really old story, but apparently it isn't outdated because we keep on telling it. The reality is that we've twisted, we are twisted up in this cultural narrative that has real implications for our lives. This week, I saw Bill Maher on Real Time with Bill Maher make the argument that power breeds power. And we are all in a constant struggle for power. Darwin suggested that only the strongest survive. And you and I have heard that bullying exists at the highest level of government and business. Not only that, but children are carrying out violent acts that they see normalized in the world that is around them. And those who have no power are clamoring to be heard. Their voices have been muted. We're continuing to lose our war on drugs, our war on poverty, our war on equality. There's this great line that Deputy Barney Fife says to Sheriff Andy Taylor in the Andy Griffith Show when the town drunk, Otis gets this car. Andy wishfully suggests that, that it just might be okay. But Barney says to him, Ange, open your eyes. Right now, we're living in a disaster area. Like good Americans of the 21st century, the Jewish people of the 6th and 7th and 8th century B.C. made God in their own image. Their leaders from King Ahaz to King Hezekiah to King Manasseh were, uh, were demagogues. Here's a picture of them. Their officials played politics. Their worship was self-glorifying and self-serving. They, they told lies. There were conspiracies at the highest level. Alliances with foreign pagan governments were made. A whole economic system was built on the backs of the weak. And in the end, those who suffered the most were the ones that were silenced. This is the Old Testament story. They made God into their own image. This was the story, the narrative they crafted. This was the story that they wanted. Prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah warned them that the systems they build reduce all of life to a commodity and it robs human beings of their humanness. But people would not listen to the prophets. So as a matter of judgment, God lifted his hand of guidance from the people and there was pain. No one can say that God does not give us what we want. Now, in chapter 39 of Isaiah, the word of the Lord came to King Hezekiah, and it came through Isaiah, and it said, Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord Almighty. The time will surely come when everything in your palace and all that your fathers have stored up until this day will be carried into Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. But Hezekiah does not believe Isaiah. And Hezekiah forgot maybe what we forget from time to time, and that was that this is the word of the Lord, and the Lord tells the truth. So in 583 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon completely destroys Jerusalem. The temple was burned. The Davidic dynasty was terminated. Many were killed, and those who were left over were deported. They were forced to assimilate into a whole new pagan system with a whole new culture and language and story. 
which is another word for propaganda. This is a time in biblical history that we call the exile. My neighbor, my former neighbor, uh, Roy Teehee, is now in his 80s, and he is a full-blooded Cherokee American who grew up in Coffeyville, Kansas. He told me that during the war, uh, Nazi POWs were put on, t- on these trains, and, and uh, they came through Coffeyville there in Kansas. And Roy's dad would take him down to the train station, and while neither of them were Nazi sympathizers, his dad would whisper to him in his ear and say, Roy, look at their faces. That's the look our people had when they were forced from their lands. He did not want Roy to forget. This is exile. And the ancient world believed that Babylon was the center of the universe, They believed that Babylon, this place where the Jewish people were moved to, they believed that it hosted the gods. Babylon represented the chaos of an aggressive, greedy social system, all held up by the gods the people had created in their own image. The dominant ideology in Babylon was a free market consumerism and its ally, unbridled materialism. And it was rooted even in the theological stories that they told. And it didn't matter who you were. Liberal and conservative alike were included in this game. The ideology set the limits on what was possible and what was good, what was to be feared and what was to be trusted. And the people of God who who were now in exile, who were moved to Babylon, were now strangers in a strange land, and they were being assimilated into a strange story. Paul describes exile well. He says, you were excluded from citizenship, in Israel, and you were foreigners to the covenants of the promise. You were without hope and without God in the world. There is no comfort in exile, no protection, no one to intervene, no one powerful enough to make a difference. Psalm 137 describes the people as they sat on the shores of Babylon. They sat there for a long time, weeping, Their grief is expressed in lamentations, and for them it was this really long, hopeless wait until Isaiah 40. Now, several years have passed between Isaiah 39 and Isaiah 40, and in the midst of exile, many had died there in Babylon in that foreign land, and, and, and their sons and daughters knew nothing of this life before. But, but many years later, After the conversation with Hezekiah, another word comes from the Lord. Comfort. Comfort my people, says the Lord. Now, I'll admit that these might just be words, maybe even empty words for those who are in this sanctuary that feel like they're in exile. Those who are sick and suffering, those whose voices have been muted, those who hold on to secret shame, those of you who maybe feel oppressed, uh, unless these words can be empty, unless we take a step back, because there is this whole massive backstory going on here that we we have to look at in, in order to understand and read Isaiah's message, and we have to do so with that backstory in mind. Now, Genesis chapter 1 through 3 is this incredible poetic story of creation. It's, it's got 
hymn-like feelings to it. And some believe that Genesis 1-1 is not so much just the first verse of the Torah, but rather the, the first verse that says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. But some believe that it is actually the title of the Torah itself. It's a hymn-like tale that speaks to the, the nature and the character of God who establishes order. And while contributed to the, the, thought, the Moses tradition in its inception, many believe that, that, this, creation, that this creation narrative, many believe that it received its final form in its writing during the Babylonian exile. And they believe this because it wasn't the only creation narrative of the ancient world. In fact, as little Jewish children were attending the Babylonian public schools and they were being assimilated into Babylonian culture, they did so by learning the Babylonian creation narrative. It was called the Enuma Elish, which means on high, and it was the main creation narrative in the region of this world at this time. It it was the Mesopotamian Babylonian creation narrative, and it's recorded on seven tablets. Now, the Enuma Elish is this portal to another world that reflects our own. Think, I don't know, think the Avengers. Think Star Wars. think, Think about how other worlds look in some of the literature and some of the genres we look at. And the story goes like this. There was this assortment of gods that sat on a divine council, and they represented various aspects of the physical world. Now, the god Apsu, right here, Apsu, whiteboard backed by popular demand. The, the god Apsu was the god of fresh water, which when you read into it and you know the symbolism, you begin to realize that this was about male fertility, It was the highest value in the land. He's married to the god Tiamat, right here, who is the goddess of the sea. But it's more than that, because she actually represents chaos and threat. So together, uh, they begat Ashnar and Kishar. There, there, right there. I don't know how to spell their names. Just off the cuff. So there you go, A and K. These are the gods that represent boundaries between the earth and the sky, and this is the horizon. Now, Ashnar and Kishnar begat Anu, right here, A-N-U, I know how to spell that. So um, he, is the, he is this uh, god of the sky who then begats Ea, right there, okay? And Ea then marries Domica, right there, so they're together, and then they have together the greatest of all gods, the patron god of of Babylon, the god of the spring, symbolized in the light of the sun and the lightning of the rain, and his name is Marduk. He's the greatest god there ever was. You can actually Google this and read about it. Now, the sons of the gods, all these sons right here, are so bad, the tale tells us, and they create so much chaos that Absu, the great-granddad, is forced to destroy them. Well, Ea, who's one of the grandsons, learns about this plan, and he plans to kill and is successful at killing Absu, and he establishes his dwelling uh, above his body. In other words, he gets a taste of blood, 
And he begins to take charge because once he has tasted blood, now he has claimed power and he understands and knows what victory feels like because he has ruined someone else. Have you ever heard that story before? Now, Tiamat, who's Absu's wife, is angry at the death of her husband and she makes a vow of vengeance. And the tale tells us that she creates 11 monsters to carry out her vengeance. And then she marries a, man, uh, she marries a god named Kingu, who is now in charge of the monster army. This is a huge, wide mess. It is in the cycle of the seasons that the Babylonians then believe that Tiamat, who is this goddess of the sea and the goddess of chaos, that she can be seen in the winter and she is, in, she is barren. And it is in all of this that she plans to unleash her destructive forces that she assembles on all of the other gods. Now, notice in this narrative, which characters are projected as good and which characters are projected determined to be evil? Have you ever heard the phrase, heaven has no rage like love to hatred turned? nor hell a fury like a woman scorned. In recent days, I, just even this week, I've heard, a lot about a, I've heard a lot about women scorned, women angry, women who have tried to tell their story but have been silenced. They've been shut down, bullied, told they cannot think. I've heard stories of women and girls who have been abused or pushed or mistreated, women or girls who have pleaded to be believed, and women who don't even try. I heard a story about a coach who blames girls for ruining everything. And in doing so, he's living out the enuma elish in the physical world. The male god is the one who is good, the female is the one who is evil in the Numa Elish. The goddess Tiamat is painted as angry, and the gods grow afraid that they cannot contain her vengeful wrath. She must be put in her place. She must be even destroyed. So the minister god, Gaga, There's an A on the end of that. The minister god, Gaga, is dispatched to the other gods to tell them of Tiamat's activity, and they find one. His name is Marduk. And in this ancient tale, on these ancient stones, he is named, he's got a nickname, the Avenger. And he will face her. Marduk insists, if he is going to carry out the revenge, that the council of the gods give him complete authority. He and he alone will be in charge. And he says, proclaim my supreme destiny. Let my word instead of you determine the facts. And with then yielded power, the council sings his praises. Can you see the symbolism here? Marduk is made high king by the council, and then he assembles his weapons, according to the tale. The four winds and the seven winds of destruction, he rides in on a chariot of clouds with the weapons and storms to confront the goddess Tiamat. She's deprived of her power by the wind, and then Marduk kills her with an arrow through the heart and takes captive the gods who are her allies. She's brokenhearted and she is silenced. He then clubs her on the head, cuts her up, and with her corpse, he 
creates. He makes half of the earth and the other half the sky complete with bars to keep those chaotic waters, feminine symbolism, from escaping. The, the, the story continues. The spittle of Tiamat in her pain are, are the rains, and her pain was so great that the tears of Tiamat built the Euphrates and the Tigris rivers. He closed her nostrils, which means that he suffocated her. And then from her, bre- from her best, he made the mountains, and this chaotic world was established. And then it tells of a tale in which he twisted up her tail, and by her crotch she was fastened to the heavens. This is ultimate power. And these are the stories that we have heard. By her ruined body, Marduk builds this luxurious abode for himself. He calls it Babylon. Babylon was the center of the universe and its audience and in the audience room of King Marduk. It's the center where the temple is built. It's here where he will establish his sovereignty for all creation. It's where the council gathers to carry out every single wish that he has, and they sing his praises. And at the suggestion of the gods, an incredibly savvy political move, the blood of the husband, Tiamat, king who is spilled, and from that blood, humans are created who do the menial tasks of the gods. This is the Babylonian creation narrative, the Enuma Elish. This is the story that they heard in Babylon. Creation is chaos. It is violent and it is offensive and it is not equal and people are pushed down and shamed. And it is against this background that the Jewish Christian creation story is told and then retold in Isaiah. And what we hear in Isaiah is God cannot and will not be manipulated or coerced, and God absolutely refuses to be made in our image. In a world of exile, which we are in, this is incredibly cutting edge, and it's a hopeful declaration. It's a word of good news to us, a gospel word in a day of chaos, That the Jewish God, the Christian God, is different because the Jewish God, the Christian God, speaks and the world exists. it, It tells a story that God creates deliberately and purposely for the world. It tells us a story where God alone brings order and stability to the created chaos. It tells us a story of the, that the world is orderly because God has determined that the world is orderly. God calls this world good, not chaos. And those who are in it, he calls very good. Every creature, all of creation is good. God in this text reveals God's self to the Israelites as they are in exile as the one and holy God. Now, the word for it, the Hebrew word for holy is kadosh, and it doesn't have anything to do with like morality or moral excellence. Instead, what it means is a radical separation and a uniqueness. God's story and the one we are being invited into is one of hospitality, where you and I are, are invited to be participants into a new story. It's not the same story as the one we hear every single day. It is alternatively different than any other story. And it is a story of freedom, it's a story of hope, and it's an invitation into a new order. Last week we talked about Isaiah chapter 6, this throne room of God. 
you, you notice that God was not sitting around a council as a member on the council, but instead the Lord's holiness filled the whole earth and the temple and his glory filled everything. There is one God. This story is a resistance and it is a declaration. There is a new center to the universe and it has been established. And it doesn't look like Babylon or Washington or the boardroom or the locker room. As the seraphim fly around, they sing together, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. God is separate and completely other. He is nothing like the gods we construct, totally unique to the gods that we call on or desire, entirely separate. God is holy entirely, and the story of God is completely different as well. God saw these exiles, and then, in their pain, he called out a new word. It was a word of creation, and it revealed God's own character, and it looked like hospitality. He shouts, enough, enough, enough sentence, enough punishment, enough penalty, enough uh, payment, enough exile, enough chaos, enough displacement. And while the Enuma Elish is the backdrop for Isaiah the the prophet, the, the symbolism cannot be lost on us today because the text continues. Notice the pronouns that come in the word of the Lord. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Can you see the difference in the Jewish creation narrative and the Babylonian one? For some time I've wanted to say this, and I felt like I missed the opportunity, but Isaiah chapter 40 doesn't allow me to miss the opportunity today. For those of you who have been victims of violence and you have not been able to tell your story or you have been worrying that you will not be believed because you find yourself in a world of power players and your voice has been silenced, I'd like to say to you as one who carries priestly duties and mediates on behalf of God in Christ, I am so sorry. The hospitable and almighty God has heard your cries and we share in those cries with you. I also want to say as one who carries out not just priestly duties but prophetic ones that Isaiah is the declaration that the emancipating hospitable God is, is, is crafting and creating a new story. If you look in the text, it says all men It means that all those who represent Marduk and his council, the structures, the power plays, all are like like grass, and their glory is like the flowers of the fields. They are here for a little bit, and then they are gone. But the one holy and hospitable God of the exiles has proclaimed them freed. He has delivered them a word, and it will stand forever. This is the good news for us. So we join together. The ones who are filled with hope, that are the ones who are filled with hope that will eventually lead to our healing, and we share this new story in belief, proclamation, and practice. 
And we do so with others who have read this text for thousands of years now. Messengers of the good news. Shout it from the mountaintops. Shout it louder, Jerusalem. Shout it and do not be afraid. Tell the towns of Judah, your God is coming. Yes, the sovereign Lord is coming in power. He will rule with a powerful arm. See, he brings his reward with him as he comes. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will carry the lambs in his arms, holding them close to his heart. He will gently lead the mother sheep with her young. Friends, this is good news for us. It reveals the character of God to us. And we, as a Christian church, believe that the character of this emancipating and hospitable God is revealed most clearly in the person of his son, Jesus of Nazareth. And we gather every single week at his table, and we recognize that it is at this table where the hospitality of God is extended to us. We come to this table to remember these great words from Isaiah. We come to this table of hospitality and hope, and we hear things like this at his last meal that he ever ate with his friends while the goon squad was already laying it for him in the shadows and all hell was about ready to break loose. He said to us, to his friends, with great confidence, be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. His extension of hospitality, that you are welcome to his table, that you are his children, that you are his creation, that you are the people of his family, that you are sons and daughters, that you are the ones who know equality and freedom and hope. This comes in his hospitality. And when we gather here at this table of hospitality and hope, the invitation is extended to us, and we receive his grace. So I want to remind you that at dinner, on the night before Jesus was betrayed by those he came to save, he took the bread and he broke it, and he gave thanks, and he said, this is my body, and it is broken for you. And whenever you eat it, I want you to remember me. And then in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he said, after holding it up, this cup is the new covenant that comes in my blood. And whenever you drink this, I want you to do so in affectionate remembrance of me. Any person who is willing to face the truth about who they are and who this God is, any person who is willing to step out of an old story into a new story is welcome to this table. John Wesley said that communion is salvific which means it is the place where we get saved, saved into a new life, saved from our old ways, saved from our selfishness, saved from our past, saved from the narratives and the stories we try to tell, saved into a brand new story and a new future. And if that is what you long for and desire, you are welcome to this table of hospitality. We want no barriers, so our bread is gluten-free, our wine is non-alcoholic, so anyone who wants to come is free to come. But when you come, I want you to leave the left side, uh, leave out the left side of your row, come down the aisle with your hands cupped, ready to receive that which is good and that which comes from God. When you come, approach one of these servers. Listen to what they have to say, because it is good news for you. Dip the bread into the cup, eat it, and be thankful. If for any reason you cannot come to one of our servers, wave at Justin. He will bring the elements to you.
So when you are ready, my friends, please come.